You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined by my two good friends, Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kistler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Hey guys, guess what, Stephen? We got your crappy weather from like three <laughs> weeks ago. <laughs> oh man, I'm really sorry about that. I didn't mean oh. to send it to you guys. Yeah, I knew it was your fault. This nope. is this is the real this is the conspiracy that's worth actually advertising, guys. Stephen caused this. This is this right. this this cold weather in Colorado. But uh, how's it going, guys? Good. We're doing well. Good. How was your guys' Mother's Day? It was really nice. Yeah, we had a good Mother's Day. We uh, Zoom called Zoom called my folks um, and uh, my in-laws. Hung out a lot. We've been we're trying to build as part of our homeschooling project these bird bird houses, bird boxes for the backyard. So spent nice. some time over the last couple of days out in the workshop with the with the kids. Um, so it's been nice. Great, yeah. Stephen. What'd you do? Uh, so it's kind of a double duty holiday this weekend. So Allie's sister just graduated from, uh, undergrad at Duke. So shout out to her. Um, so that was the celebrations for that were on Sunday as well. So we also spent a lot of time on zoom and, uh, just celebrating with the family. So great. I made crepes for two and a half hours. (laughs) <laughs> crepes are one of those things, you know, hey. we, we actually made crepes this weekend too. And it's like, you get tired of making them before you make enough to make anybody happy. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Like you don't, it's one of those things you cannot, when you have three really hungry hippos, yeah. basically, like yeah. you cannot like tell them when you're making them because it like, okay, after five minutes you have one. And then it's like 20 minutes later, you get your second one. So that was, it was well worth it. It was fun. It was fun making them. The boys loved it and uh, it was good. So we had a good mother's day. Uh, It's a little gloomy today and that's no big deal. Okay. So let's get going. A couple of things before we go. Uh, We could always use more reviews. Thank you so much for those who've left reviews. Uh, Go to iTunes and leave whatever you think it deserves. If you have a few extra minutes, can write a couple of lines as well, it helps to go a long way to kind of bring it more into the open so that people can have access to this. As well, as if you can help support uh, this podcast to help us with uh, a little more gear and some editing offsetting, it would be greatly appreciated. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. Or if you don't want to give on a monthly recurring level, just a one-time fee, totally get that PayPal or Venmo. Those are in the show notes. Just check them out. Give a, give a small donation. Thank you so much for all those who are supporting the show. It's hugely helpful for me in particular with all the editing and those kind of things. So let's get in straight in the news. I had some comments over the past weekend that sometimes one of their favorite places is when we talk about the news, just kind of highlighting some of the big stuff. So I want to start with uh, Mark, with you on this one. We riffed about this on Friday over text, and I see that I saw this grow like crazy. I've had text come my way from my friends, and this idea of just really building this sense of uh, enormous amount of suspicion now with with the medical uh, industry, it's particularly with uh, COVID deaths. And we talked about how uh, the idea that uh, they're inflating COVID deaths. We talked about that on on Thursday, but now on top of that. We have this idea that you guys are getting paid buco bucks to declare COVID, uh, give COVID the name to an, a, 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 someone who came in, as well as you getting more money for ventilators and declaring the COVID death. So uh, have you bought a new house with this money or what's going on, Mark? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, it's an interesting, this is an interesting, I guess, uh, instance of spin. And so there is the, the what my understanding of the truth is that there are different Medicare rates. So there are higher, currently higher Medicare rates for certain uh, COVID-19 diagnosis codes and treatment. And it, not as far as I know, I don't think any of that's being 
you know trickled or funneled to physicians which is the charge you know that's that's what i heard you know from social media that you had mentioned is that you know doctors are getting paid essentially by the covid diagnosis which that I have never heard of anything like that happening, uh, uh, but I think so. This this is interesting, right? So you, on one level, you say, okay, so we have this unprecedented global situation. We've got to really, um, you know, mobilize resources. What's a way to mobilize resources? Well, we we put them. How do we know we're putting them where they need to be? Because we want to fight, you know, COVID. We want to put the money where the big problem is. Well, let's tie some additional reimbursement rates to those diagnostic codes so that you know Medicare money goes to the treating the disease that's the problem right now. So that makes sense sort of from that side of things, why you might uh, have an, you know, an increased um, reimbursement rate for those particular diagnostic codes or something. But I think when you turn it on the other side, you say, oh, they're incentivizing false reporting. That's, there is a name for that, which is Medicare fraud. Um, and it's, you know, it's illegal. It would be, yeah. in it, and, uh, you know, my hope is that that's not going on anywhere. And, you know, of course, there can be, you know, there's suspicion that, you know, this is, there's shady, there's under the table stuff going on, there's money being passed to inflate the numbers here. But that would be, I mean, I think that's, it doesn't seem to be what's, well, I, I can only speak for, you know, my very local situated setting, right? And that's just not what's going on. Um, and and I think that, you know, to, to make a claim, and this, this is interesting because this has come up in a lot of different places that, you know, claiming that, that hospitals and doctors are being incentivized to inflate the numbers so it seems worse than it is, to prolong the lockdown, to sink our economy for some other nefarious cause, you know? Um, and I just think that's that's just the, the wrong reading. It's a backwards reading of where this money is coming from and where it's supposed to be going. I'm kind of just mind boggled. I don't, I mean, to me, like you said, it kind of makes sense, especially when you get into like a big government who, who's trying to offer trillions of dollars of, of, uh, of assistance, right? I could imagine that some things are going to be done in uh, less, uh, maybe fully thought out ways, right? I could see in my mind thinking, we need to help the hospitals. We need to help those who are actually dealing with COVID, Right. So how do we do that? Let's okay. Here's the, here's the lowest way we can do it. The easiest way we can do it is just putting a number on this for Medicare to help bring about the resources available to fight this. Right. Makes complete sense. And I just loved, I don't know if it was Stephen and Mark, he has mentioned last Thursday, the idea, and I've read it in a number of articles of how it's just important to realize that everything really works incrementally. And when you make large conclusions or big jumps, that should be a cause for my own life. I realize. I mean, I'm just, again, I am learning so much about myself in this whole reality and that now I'm putting more checks and balances in my own life that when I make a big leap and I recognize, oh, that was that was this circumstance. And then I made this radical conclusion that's in the, the galaxy, right, of it. But uh, it's a large jump that has nothing in between to sustain it. Right, that I should make it be a you know cause a question. I think this is a perfect example yeah, of this. Yeah, right? you know, and I think I, I, we we had kind of riffed on this a little bit on the on the text message. Said, but I I feel there's a there's a personal element to a charge like that, right? Where you're essentially you're you're saying that physicians are lying. You know, you're violating we're violating sort of this oath that that we take to. Uh, you know, to be truthful, to provide the care that, to people that need it. And and so, you know, there's, I think that it's just like, it would be massively unethical for, to be inflating or to, you know, to be saying that there's a diagnosis that doesn't exist, just like massive, massively unethical. Um, and, and so, you know, that's just another kind of level of, you know, level to that 
charge and and kind of the implications of that in terms of like you know the level of distrust i think of, of sort of the medical establishment and what's going on you know that's that, that would be like i don't know, like recommending treatment that doesn't need, need to happen and you know lying about the reasons for it and that's just not you know not what ethically is appropriate. I I think we're going to be going all over the place in this episode because Mark, what you just now just spoke of, it just reminded me of before we recorded and we're talking about the idea of things being grounded in practice. Mark, you were talking about this and I know that's, that's a deeper issue. We were talking about a book and a reference, but I think this kind of goes in the same area where like, okay, if, um, if somebody is getting thirteen, thirty-nine thousand dollars, it might be nice to actually give a few occurrences of where it's actually being practiced, <laughs> versus just simply saying, "Oh, this is given to those people." Thus, this is the, this is the issue, right? There's conspiracy, but there's no there's no practice of this, or at least there's no knowledgeable practice of this this happening, right? Another thing in the news, so I hope that helps people who are listening right now. That this is another reason why I think it gets so uh, flustered, right? Uh, if I had little feathers, they'd be uh, they'd be going all over the place, right? Because the reason why there is an image, there is an image. Could enhance, could could actually enhance my looks with if I have enough feathers <laughs> to, to cover <laughs> my, my myself. Okay, so um, <laughs> right. uh, the other thing that I I, I wanted to uh, talk about. Oh no, I just uh, hold on. I, I got in the feather imagery. Okay, I'm gonna go back. <laughs> Me too, man. I, I, I got, I'm stuck I got there. so Can distracted by. I, there's no coming back feathers. from that. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I'm, I'm back. I'm back from my feathers now, so I can, I can. In light of this feather image that really fell down poorly flat and was a terrible idea, uh, this is one thing that just irks me. Is because there is there is this. Uh, I don't want to say an opposition, you guys, but the, I don't want to call it that. I would like it to be a dialogue, but another side of things that's being presented, and and this other side is being looked at. This idea of coronavirus being really a potential threat, and they need to be taken very seriously and trying to mitigate as much as possible, and clearly recognizing the need that people need to go back to business and have jobs, and clearly those both things need to happen. But when I'm constantly getting these things like this, right, the in the the payouts or the, you know, CDC change the deaths and ha ha ha, what's going on there? And then over and over and over, I get to see the reality behind it. And it's not what they're proposing. It just it just continues, it continues to discredit the other side more and more and more, even if they do have some, some great points. And that's what frustrates me that like, uh, can we just be on the same page, at least in the sense of looking at things that can we, that actually have some kind of standard measure that we look at to see, is this really happening? Yeah. You know, I think I agree with you. I, it's in some ways in the noise, we lose some of the more like kind of those voices. Like, And one of the voices we talked about in preparation for today was Dr. David Katz, who wrote the op-ed for the New York Times. And a buddy of mine, Matt in Houston, actually sent me a video that we can link up to the interview that he did on HBO. And, and you know, he, he his, his was an, one of the early articles that said, you know, is what we're doing against coronavirus worse than the disease itself you know are we kind of doubling up on the the impact by both you know killing our economy and and not being effective enough with our quarantine and he had some interesting arguments about a more surgical approach and you know of course there are some nuances there and Stephen has talked a lot about those on previous episodes about the difficulties of, of a surgical approach especially and and in phase one in particular kind of the need to to shut things down but also the need for there to be 
a phase two where we start to reopen in a rational way. And and so he had some, in addition, some, some other points that we should talk about in terms of like, how do we leverage an event like this to focus on population health um, and on some of the non-glamorous, non-money-making things like eating well, exercising, reducing the burden of chronic disease in communities like diabetes and hypertension, because those are clear in, you know, clearly correlated with increased morbidity and mortality. And so how do we leverage, you know, at an event like this to create a pu- greater public health awareness uh, about those things, which I also think is, you know, really commendable. Um, so it's voices like that, that I think it's silenced or at least shouted down, you know, in, in the noise of, you know, the, the high levels of suspicion and, and concern about conspiracy and things going on under the table. And it's, it's voices like that, that I think um, provide kind of the, the necessary ballast, you know, that we've, we've been talking about and uh, it's just a lot more helpful. So I don't know, Stephen, you have any thoughts? You, I know you've, you've been in some conversations about kind of, of reopening and what things might look like and how to talk across disciplines um, in order to look in to that um you know any thoughts on that or on the on that video yeah i mean i i agree i would i would highly recommend watching the video to anyone who has it available um yeah it, it can be very difficult you know to <laughs> i feel like this is in some sense of the story of my life but communication is hard right like we know this on like a personal level boy i know it steven man communication is hard and I am really, really <laughs> bad. Just want to, that's yeah. my PSA. Go ahead, Stephen. Right. Well, right. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it, I think that, yeah, of, of course, like communication becomes much easier when we start from a, a place of common ground and like recognizing, okay. And, and I think that that's one of the things that, that is, that comes across really clearly and well in this video is that like, all right, so w- what we're in the business of doing right now is saving lives. That's what we want to do we're all after this goal and now what's what's the best way to achieve that and what are all of the you know different scenarios that might play out and 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 i think that starting from that point of view can can go a long way towards cutting down some of the shrillness of the debates that 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 end up happening because i think what ends up happening is that we infer from the people we're speaking with that they don't have that same presupposition because how could they possibly based on what they're saying simply because we're coming at it from such a different perspective um, and so that's been one of the difficulties i mean even even in the conversations amongst colleagues is sort of having to take a step back and like remind ourselves like okay we're we're after the same goal here and we're coming at it from like wildly different angles sometimes but but recognizing that that point of common ground is there i think is hugely important and is the only way forward um and like mark said sort of provides the ballast for these conversations here's here's the problem i'm thinking now i'm shameless plug i was going to release this week but i'm going to redo it i have a new podcast to be coming out called living the real and uh, i basically realized that when i speak by myself in a podcast it just sounds really boring and uh and so i'm redoing it uh it was but one of the first episodes is going to be is about this idea of the gap now it's going to take a very different twist but i want to feel i want to talk about the gap right here guys because there's a different kind of gap i want to discuss I mean, don't you feel this way? So here's the deal is that there's a gap being created by a polarity of, of people staying on the ground, right? So um, we talked about this off the air, this sense of keep things locked down forever, right? So uh, maybe and then, then reopen everything as if right now is back to normal. And then I'm starting, I, honestly, the gap is causing the problem because now I have to pick either or when it's much more complicated, right? So I'm, I think I'm being looked at as a guy who wants lockdown. And then, 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 you know, I, honestly, I, over the weekend, I'm like, am I that dude? 
is that this podcast? I forgot. What do we stand for? And so like, uh, we're, so, so then I'm, I, I'm in my own like, like uh, existential crisis. I'm in a midlife crisis. knowing don't even know what I believe now because I'm like, oh, well, I don't think we should be locked down until the vaccine comes out. And I don't think we should open up things. And so I feel like this gap is causing a much more bigger problem because now it, I'm being pigeonholed as the dude who wants a lockdown forever, which I don't, you know, I kind of like income. I kind of like my family to have food. <laughs> I mean, I really do value those things. I like my kids to live. I mean, these are really, really yeah. big, strong values yeah. I have. So I don't want that. Right. But I feel like the gap is causing a huge, huge problem. Then we mm. end up fighting over the disparity of the gap versus the content. Do you feel that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a lot easier to, you know, to interact with with you, Matt, as a as a two dimensional. Like you stand for this one thing, and that's what you are, and that's kind of the totality, you know. And as opposed to interacting with you on the on a level of like nuanced conversation and kind of the wholeness of who you are, and yet at the same time, we I think we we rely on each other, just yeah. as you were saying, oh, like yeah. you know, starting to question, like, am I am I the lockdown guy? Like we rely on each we we become ourselves in in relationship, you know, fundamentally. Like we know we know who we are. It's we we're in this really weird place where we're all you know sitting in our basements with our you know our families or by ourselves and and interacting with the world in these highly mediated ways. And of course that's going to have some impact on sort of the way we start to think about, you know, ourselves and, and stuff like that. So it makes a lot of you know sense what you're saying, but, but I think re- resisting that flattening, you know, and resisting the lack of nuance because it's, because it's easier, because it's a heuristic that we can use, you know, but, but just like maintaining that sense and like, and, and extending that same you know, charity to other people of like, you know, they are also deeply nuanced and nobody, you know, he's uh-huh. not necessarily the big reopening guy, you know, either. And like, how do we, how do we kind of maintain some sense of normalcy in this, uh, you know, weird scenario? Yeah, no, just, just related to that. I mean, I think that, um, and this is sort of related to some other things we were talking about offline too, but the, maybe one of the antidotes to that, to that polarity and flattening, I think, I think is narrative to some extent. I mean, one of the things that I've been really frustrated with about the way that, people have been talking about their positions with respect to this epidemic is how flattened they are in time in the sense that, you know, as Mark, you were saying, we need, uh, you know, there was this essential period of this widespread sort of social physical distancing, but now there needs to be a phase two and phase three. And and, and part of the problem is that if, if there is no time to our description to ourselves, if there is no thread, then there's no way to express that, you know, you have to either be pro or anti lockdown or pro or, you know, whatever, but there is no sense of like, well, this is, this is sort of a trajectory this is the way that I envision things unfolding. And, and I think narrative has a real power. I mean, we know that this is why narratives have stuck with us for so many thousands of years, because they have a way of sort of blasting open this, um, this pigeonholing, you know, they're, they're, they're sources of, of continual renewal and new information, you know, the same string of text, the same narrative can be like reinterpreted and re reimagined in different ways. And I think that's one of the things that I lament most about this is that uh, rather than sharing our narratives with each other, we're sharing our positions or our, and, and, and so rather than becoming, yeah, living narratives, we sort of become characters in this greater narrative where we have no idea what's going on. (laughs) Right. And, and the only thing that exists is kind of the immediate position right now, you know, where, and, and the louder, you know, the, the more strongly that that can be shouted, kind of the more valence it has, the more, more power it has. Totally. So, and I, and I get this particularly with, so when I talk to someone who maybe follows a different perspective, right? This almost either or camp and say, this is why I, I get, I, it, it hurts me, I guess that well, I'll, I'll talk to someone about it. 
and then I'll reveal that what they think that is a um, a grounding for their principle, right, uh, is is incorrect, right? So no, look at this, just check this out. It's, it's actually more complicated. And then instead of saying, oh, right, okay, right, they'll just go, well, what about this? Well, what about this? What about this? So keep throwing things right at, at me, right? Instead of taking the moment to just digest the fact that that one thing that they said maybe was more complicated than they anticipated. And to allow that to maybe open up their mind and their heart to maybe uh, a reevaluation. And I think the polarity makes it complicated for anyone to do that because what you're feeling to do, so you have to, you have to, if, you, if you let go of that position, you have to go to the other camp, right? And, but, but that's not what I'm saying, right? That's not what it, and so that makes, so this whole, all I'm saying is this polarity, this, 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 this loud noise, is making us stand like really short-fitted in positions that are radical, which we're going to watch our our society and culture like wither away in some extent until we can come together and say it's not that complicated, or it's 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 it, it is that complicated, and that we we need to be able to realize that by me saying, oh yeah, you're right, that's that you're right, that, that I was wrong in that. That does not mean I'm going over to the other side, right? That 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 just means that one thing is wrong, and now we can start having dialogue. But I just don't feel that right now. I just feel like they're, this polarity has caused a pretty big wedge. It's hard to talk. Yeah. 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 Might be, might be time for a social media fast, <laughs> deep, <laughs> I, deep, heavy one. Yeah. You know, it's tough because I think there's, yeah. And it generates its own. It just like has its own energy that it kind of continues to generate. Yeah. That'll cause uprising. Well, let's have the government do a social media lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's not what I, that's not, <laughs> I, don't, I don't advocate that. I know, uh, we are not advocating that. <laughs> I'm just, I was totally joking guys. <laughs> okay. So another thing I want to chat about as well is we talked about this probably two weeks ago and it was barely scratch surface in the news. So I wanted Mark to recircle this. I saw it come up. Maybe it was yesterday's news. Maybe it was today's, but uh, it seems like this Kawasaki and, and COVID yeah. thing is maybe having a little bit more of a real grounding than, than we thought a couple weeks ago, or this was preliminary. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we a couple of weeks ago there had been some preliminary reports from some other, especially other countries, where they were saying that in in areas they were seeing maybe a little increased incidence of this rare vascular disease in children um, that had been hit hard by the coronavirus. And so we had talked also about how Kawasaki disease is kind of an inflammation of the blood vessels, causes different manifestations throughout the body. It's a illness encountered in children. Um, we don't know. It's something that happened before this as well, but and there's been some hypotheses that there may be a viral trigger to that. And so there's kind of a host predisposition and then also an environmental trigger that may work together to create this inflammatory cascade in the body. Um, and it can have some severe effects um, for sure. And it is rare. It's a very rare disease. So it does appear that in, you know, we've seen in some of these areas, including New York City, that there are increased cases of this and in, in certain increased severe cases of Kawasaki disease more than we would expect, given kind of the general populational characteristics that are seeming to say that there's some correlation, at least, um, you know, if not yeah, that there may actually be causation that you know coronavirus is actually causing this to to happen more frequently. It does still look like relatively low numbers, but it is something worth paying a lot of attention to. And, and so I'm interested to chat more with some of my pediatric colleagues and kind of hear you know on the ground what what we've been seeing here. And uh, it's something you know just in terms of vigilance, so practical things you know for those um, who may care for young children, you, you know 
So the manifestations of Kawasaki disease include a sustained fever, um, red eyes, so a conjunctivitis, a kind of red cracked lips. It can be inflammation or swelling of the fingers and toes, uh, or other areas, and lymph nodes, adenopathy, so lymph nodes in the neck uh, can be enlarged. And often those are kind of the things, there's a very kind of a, a look, you know, of a child with Kawasaki disease where they, they have this kind of, um, you know, these, these factors blend together and create sort of a clinical syndrome or a cluster of symptoms. Now, not everybody has every single one of those. There are also things that can be done in terms of laboratory tests that help to differentiate Kawasaki disease from, you know, there's a whole lot of things in kids that cause red eyes that are not <laughs> this. There's a whole lot of things that cause fevers that are not this, adenopathy. And so it's it's really best to talk to your local pediatrician if you're concerned um, and start to have that conversation. But but I would say just in terms of things, you know, if you're saying, well, what do I need to watch out for? You know, it's that, that idea of sustained fevers and then some of those other symptoms that I mentioned would be reasons to touch base with your pediatrician and uh, start to have that conversation about, you know, do we need to come in for some additional lab work? Do you need to do a physical exam and, so that we can catch this earlier in the disease course and maybe start some, there are interventions that we can do to help reduce the inflammation and reduce some of the long-term complications of Kawasaki disease as well. Um, so it is something that's worth catching early if you can. Um, so just kind of a plug for, you know, those are, those are some of the things to, to keep your eyes out for. When you, when you speak about Kawasaki, because being a concerned parent, I know you said, like, here's the symptoms for if they have it, right? But, I mean, I, I guess we don't know for certain what, where it's coming from. But if, it, if it's elevating or bringing about a pre-existing Kawasaki disease, it may be already be latent. Or I don't know if that's a true possibility in a child. And then when you get COVID, it just brings it out and makes it really take over. If that's if that's the case, like, is there things that I, that I as a parent can look for? Like, how do I know if my child has Kawasaki, or is it just like you just won't know until the yeah. kid gets it? So it's a little different from something like like a rheumatoid arthritis or something, which is like something that you have right that inheres kind of to you. It's an issue of your immune system that's always more or less always there. And sometimes you have a flare, and sometimes you're in remission, but it's there. Um, I don't tend to think of Kawasaki disease that way. We think of Kawasaki disease more as kind of a kind of there's a relatively time limited scenario in which it begins the acute symptoms and manifestations end and then there are is a potential for long-term sequela um, or problems that arise in the blood vessels because of that inflammation that can become chronic issues. Oh, okay. um, but it's not as if something, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's something like rheumatoid arthritis or like type one diabetes where, you know, somebody has it, it's just hasn't flared yet. Um, it's actually seems to be some interaction of like, who knows what genetic predisposition that when it gets tipped over by an outside insult, then it starts this cascade that hadn't existed before. Okay. So it's not as if there was like a baseline level of yeah. blood vessel inflammation that flares. Okay. It's more like all of a sudden it happens, it can cause, you know, in these these issues and then uh, yeah. ideally it has a, an end okay. as well. So basically there's just no way to know if your child is one of these rare possibilities, right? Until it actually yeah, happens. No, I wouldn't. And I think, you know, in terms of, you know, putting that hat on in like, how would I talk to somebody in the office about that particular worry, which I think is, you know, one that I really hear yeah. is that the, it's better to put that energy if you can in other places, right? That there's that, that, that kind of hypervigilance about wondering you know, it, there's nothing that you're going to be able to figure out, um, you know, and kind of to head that off at the pass. Um, and so you're, 
it would be better to put that energy in other things in terms of like, you know, just again, the super simple things of like good hand washing, yeah. let's prevent getting, you know, communicable diseases as much as we can. Let's make sure that our kids are eating healthy, you know, running around. And like, those are the things that have big effect sizes and trying to suss out kind of the intricacies of, you know, their susceptibility to this rare condition is just not, not the place that, uh, you know, is productive uh, as a parent to put that energy as much as possible. It's just so well said. Cause I remember at the very beginning, we, the craziness when it first happened, the pandemic and our house was just going crazy with like, how do we get groceries and how do we wash them and sterilize them and all these like things that are fringe. And we realized for days we haven't had soap dispensers in the kitchen or the bathroom because they were out. We're like, you know, those are probably the things you should probably double down on, right? The, uh, the actual soap right. and the stuff. So <laughs> yeah, that's what's important. Okay. Uh, I, another thing I want to talk about here, I want to read this quote. So I mentioned to you guys earlier, I want to see what you guys think about this. Uh, I liked this article. It was uh, called finally a virus got me. So basically about a scientist who fought Ebola, HIV, and then got COVID and his reflections at the very end of the article, it says, Many people think COVID-19 kills 1% of patients and the rest get away with some flu-like symptoms. But the story gets more complicated. Kind of sounds like our show. Many people will be left with chronic kidney and heart problems. Even their neural system is disrupted. There will be hundreds of thousands of people worldwide, possibly more, who will need treatment such as renal dialysis for the rest of their lives. The more we learn about the coronavirus, the more questions arise. We are learning while we are, we are, learning while we are sailing. That's why I get so annoyed by the many commentators on the sideline who, without much insight, criticize the scientists and policymakers trying to trying hard to get the epidemic under control. That's very unfair. What do you guys think about this, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, on on the one hand, it's there's a lot of uncertainty still, as with any emerging outbreak, as to like what the long term effects are. And he's talking about some of these, and we, we we do think that there, and Mark can probably speak to this some too, that there there probably are some you know long term consequences of severe infection that that will be associated with this. And 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 my hope is that this statement won't be so much taken as a you know a, a call to a call to greater fear around this, which actually initially was my first response. You know, he, he listed some things that I wasn't even aware of at first and then ended up doing some background reading on that kind of thing. But I think, I think the main thing and, you know, something that, as you mentioned, it's sort of the, the tagline of this, of this podcast is just that there's, there's a lot going on and a lot that we're learning and, and going back to this notion of us being in the middle of this narrative, you know, it's, it's a, it's a narrative, it's a story that's still unfolding and we're doing our best to sort of shed light on the corners of that story that we don't yet understand. And we do have a, a decent sense of, of how the story has played out so far, although, although there are still things that we're learning about the past too. But I think, I think what he brings up to sort of stating it in a different way is that there's, you know, there's, there is this story, there are things that we don't know how they will turn out. And we don't really know entirely what, what the important actors are in this story completely yet, even though we do have some sense. And I think that that's, you know, it's valuable to just have one more voice saying that and really uh, clearly saying that, you know, this is, this is something that we're still, still, still getting our hands around, still trying to figure out, you know, what, what it, what it truly is and what it means for us on every level, um, from the, from the medical to the existential. And, and I think that that's where we're at and it's, it's, it's a message worth, worth restating in as many ways as we know how. Mark. Yeah. You know, I think I agree. It, it, this quote for me just mostly operates as a call to more nuance, uh, in our understanding and conversation and a call to trust and to place that trust appropriately in the places, you know, that, that earn it, um, but also that, you know, that deserve it. And that, that degree of, you know, kind of flattening and suspicion is less than helpful. Absolutely. 
uh, it, yeah, again, it goes into just looking at qualified people. And there was a great Facebook post from some girl that I don't even know who, know who, who she is, but it was referred to, I think by an Atlantic article that I'll put in the show notes and just questioning that just be careful of who you're listening to, that just not everyone who's a scientist are actually qualified to talk in that particular area. Right. So, uh, I know I talking to a friend and who radically disagrees with kind of some of the stuff that we talk about, or I don't think he even knows what we talk about per se, but it disagrees with thinking the coronavirus is that big of a deal. And uh, he cites a lot of his friends being uh, scientists and uh, I, I don't know who they are, but uh, just be careful of who, who, who you listen to and uh, make sure they're qualified to talk, talk about the actual subject at hand. Another thing I wanted to chat about, uh, I just love this. Uh, it was a breaking point. Anti-lockdown efforts during Spanish flu offer a cautionary tale for coronavirus. It's a good segue. I didn't really realize to the extent, you guys, that like history really does repeat itself really tremendously that, Mark, you mentioned it, I don't know if it was on the air, off the air, that yes, there were people who were anti-mask wearers in the in the flu pandemic, back, you know, and, uh, and particularly in San Francisco is one place. Uh, and then reading this article and just seeing how much it's like a, like deja vu, like Groundhog's Day of similar things. A bunch of people, uh, re religious pastors, religious movements, uh, really trying to keep their churches and their worship services going in the midst of the pandemic and fighting this. Uh, it just seems a lot like today uh, and just how important it is to see the context of story and, 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 and all of this, what's really going on. Uh, any thoughts on this, Stephen, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I think I, it is interesting. You know, I think it's interesting anytime we talk about. I, I've have found the parallels to the 1918 pandemic really, really interesting and illuminating in a lot of ways, and the just this idea. And there has been some conversation about like, what did we do then that was right? What did we do then that was wrong? What are we doing now that's different? You know, we're living in a radically different society than we were in 1918 in certain ways, but then there's also these certain kind of through lines that are still there. I think that's it's just really illuminating. And um, and it is important to understand that history. And I think also just to understand um, that these that there is there's there are deeply kind of human needs that are being expressed in lots of different ways, right? There there are human needs to to gather, human needs to worship, human needs to you know uh, that. And yes, of course, that those are going to come up in both scenarios, you know, and be sort of the, the points where people have difficulty and, and there's concern and, you know, debate and dialogue about, um, in some ways for me, it, you know, it, it's helpful to see like, yes, we did have some of these same exact conversations, you know, we did have some of these same exact issues as a society, even a hundred years ago and give me a little bit of hope that like, and we will, work through it, you know, and we will, um, and ideally, hopefully we'll, we'll be better for it, um, you know, and have a, just a better way of, uh, understanding ourselves in our context and, you know, with all of our neighbors after this. And that's kind of how I thought, I thought of it as well. Not so much about trying to advocate locking down all churches or locking down. I just was looking at the context. Okay. Here we are a hundred years removed, you know, of this, this issue of closing down churches and the aftermath, right? The aftermath decades later of what, what happened, right? Well, you know, people still had their freedoms afterwards and uh, churches resumed and flourished. And so just it's it just showing the, the potential hope of the future of this particular pandemic that we will get through this. Right. We want to open up. Uh, we want to be cautious. And in the end, we'll return to something hopefully quite beautiful and different, obviously, as well. And then all that being said, what I want to know, guys, is who's right? Who is right? <laughs> You are mad. I'll just let you, you can have that. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right. A, you're right. right. 
<laughs> we're talking about all this stuff, you guys. I want to know who's right. And, and this comes from this comes from this post. Uh, Mark was talking about something, and then I had to lump this in. It was three days ago, and I just loved it. It was an acquaintance of mine uh, posted some, I think, some image, right? Some numbers. I didn't even look at the numbers. I looked at them. I kind of laughed at them. And then his comment was, "Say what you want, but lumber, but numbers don't lie." I'm like, okay, this this is the title of this episode. <laughs> Say what you want. <laughs> Numbers don't there's, lie. You know, there's an old, our, our mothers we've talked about before uh, taught statistics and calculus in high school. And there's this classic book called How to Lie with Statistics. <laughs> um, and uh, and also, you know, just like any advertising ever, um, you know, is an example of ways that, that numbers can be made to lie all the time. <laughs> you know, that that's, there's an art and a science, you know, there's like, it's like a high form of art, you know, it's like how to, how to, mm -hmm. to mislead with numbers. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, just from the, from the outset that that's something we've circled back to a lot in terms of just like, how do we, how do we have the right kind of scientific literacy, um, to appreciate the ways that numbers are being used and the, um, the kind of implications of using numbers just as numbers, um, and needing to understand some of these basic, um, you know, statistical principles, the basic principles on how do we gather evidence, the basic principles on, um, you know, the, these different testing characteristics and things like that, because that allows us then to be informed consumers of numbers that are handed to us with whatever kind of ideological intent yeah. behind them. And that sort of links back to something you were talking about a little bit before, Matt, too, that um, that I think it's come up. I don't know if we've mentioned before on this, but um, you were talking about the role of expert input on these sorts of things. And, and, and numbers can be incredibly difficult for everyone to, you know, do, like I, I still struggle with interpreting numbers after doing a PhD in math, right? Like that's, they're, 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 they're hard and they can be very misleading. And I think that, you know, one of the, we often think of experts as people who know more about something than someone else. And there's sort of this, this, this vision of an expert as, as someone who has more of something. But I think that actually like the, the value of expertise is not so much having a greater amount of knowledge, more stuff in their minds, but it's, it's a greater ability to dissect and to see the limitations of certain things, to see the limitations of arguments, to see the gaps, to see places where it needs to be filled out a little bit more, because those are things that you can't really substitute. You can always, you can always learn more information, but like expertise is sort of the ability to sort of tie these things together and say like, well, we haven't thought about this. This is sort of imbalanced. Um, and that's one of the things that numbers have, you know, can really be misleading about is because they, they give this veneer of precision and, and expertise around a certain thing that they can, they it can, it can be really hard to sift through for sure. Um, for anyone that you just hit a huge point, Steven, I was thinking, uh, so you might keep my mind right now. I think of like as a kid or even as a kid, maybe me as a 42 year old, because I'm, I'm like this where I can't draw. Like, I, I mean, not, I, I practice, I've never practiced, but it's like drawing guys. Like, you know, when you really become an expert, an artist, you can, you can go from like a little sketch. Like I can, I can do st stick figures relatively well, right? You probably can't tell whether it's a human or a dog, but I got the stick figure down. But it's very limited on the nuances and the complexities of the of the human figure. But then as you grow in your expertise, you're able to flush that out and give more give more detail and beauty, right, and complexity to the art form. Whereas I don't have that cultivation to do that. And so I think this is this is something where you just nailed it, where I'm seeing so many people just throw out numbers like a stick figure. 
but it's not the it's not the it's not the full fledged complexity of the issue. And this is what's scaring me, but also really a surge of the heart and the mind to to this is the time to be able to to dig into this and to realize this is important and, and it's and it's part of our human life and and not to reduce things so simplistic yeah. in such a simple way. Mark, you were about ready to talk. Yeah, you know, also just the sense that the the expertise of an artist or the expertise of a mathematician shows not just in what they make, right? Not just in kind of the fidelity of their what they make, but it's also their ability to provide the right kind of attention to the real things, to cut through the noise, to see the signal, you know, that the artist sees differently and attends differently than you do. And that part of the work of becoming, you know, an, an excellent artist is in developing that vision, you know, and in part of the way of being an excellent clinician is developing a sense for the body uh, and an ability to attend appropriately to what matters and what maybe matters less what matters differently and uh and it's really that it's like Stephen was saying it's the the way of thinking and the way of engaging that is really the mark of kind of a true expert i think more so than just mere you know number of facts known yeah absolutely just seeing the complexity of the, again i just think of that that uh facebook post right the numbers don't lie and that's a one set of numbers but you know i was thinking of my friend who i was texting on friday and again going through that flu idea the flu is no different than coronavirus and throwing the numbers and just that's a perfect example of a stick figure reality right it's like a very limited statistic that has appropriate number but not having the vision and the see the complexity and nuances and the way by which those two things aren't apples to apples right and how important it is to to be able to, to refer to these experts who have that capacity to see things in their complexity and relate them to the world in a way that's digestible, right? That helps us understand its complexity. So what I want to get to this, so I still don't have the answer of who's right. We, we talked really, we, this is great. We're, we're beating around the bush, guys. We, do, we don't know who's right. And I think part of this is because we have a polarity. So we think it's either or, it's much more complicated. But I want to throw it to you guys about this idea of like, where does this come from? Of, of who's right, who's wrong, and what's the problem? What, what, why, why can we not, why can we not get to a point of real dialogue? What's making us cross back and forth with each other and not connecting on any, on a, on a real level? I mean, that's the question, right? And Mark um, has and the that answer. That was the question or in a lot of ways. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Sorry, buddy, sit down. <laughs> Grab your beverage of choice. Yeah, totally. well, uh, <laughs> no, but I think, I mean, I don't, I don't have the answer, but, but it is, but I do have, um, I mean, a couple, a couple things. So that is the question, right? That was a question before this happened. Of course, it's going to continue to be a question while it's unfolding. Um, is the sense of how, why, why is it so difficult to sort of speak across the divide? Um, and there are some things that I've personally found somewhat helpful in thinking about this. Um, uh, we talked about, um, I don't think we've talked about this yet, but the uh, Jonathan Haidt book, uh, The Righteous Mind, I find um, somewhat helpful, which talks about kind of categories of moral reasoning and ways that um, political, sort of traditionally political conservative thinkers and traditionally political liberal thinkers may be reasoning with a different set of or different sets of moral categories. And so then when an appeal is made to a category that's not shared by the other uh, tendency, that then there's this place where we're not having productive dialogue anymore because it's hard. There's no common common ground or commonality. So I find that resource to be helpful. And maybe, you know, the, th the three of us, that may be one that we want to dip into a little bit and even kind of um, look at the text itself um, and have that so that we're instead of talking about ideas sort of in the abstract that we remember from something we read 
a couple of years ago, <laughs> we can actually like, you know, what, it, what, what was actually said, because I think there's some value in that. Um, the other thing for me personally, that's been uh, tremendously helpful has been the thought of Alistair McIntyre, um, who is, uh, you know, contemporary philosopher. He did a lot of his work in kind of the 80s and, and 90s, and particularly his book After Virtue um, in night published in 1984, actually, which, but it, to me, um, his diagnosis of sort of this uh, this chasm that we have, um, you know, was very uh, spot on then, even, and has just only heightened since then. Um, and he has a really interesting progression and argument where he talks about um, sort of the ways that our our ability to speak to one another has sort of been fragmented, um, and because we're we're living in a time where we don't have these shared what he calls shared kind of traditions of moral inquiry. So he's a moral philosopher, so he talks about like how do we figure out what we should do and what we owe each other and what you know what our ethical um, kind of obligations to the other are. So that's like his central concern, um, and he's uh, deeply situated in kind of a sense of. Uh, of, of virtues, right, of excellences that arise out of shared practices um, and that, he, that those shared practices become a common ground from which we can debate the excellences and we have a standard with which to judge the excellences. Um, and then he also has a tremendous sensitivity to story and to narrative and the, the narrative structure of a life. And so he's, he's able to kind of knit those things together, this um, you know, kind of damning diagnosis of our modern discourse with a historical cultural view of virtue with kind of a contemporary understanding of narrative and the way that that brings us together as people and also brings us a unity to our lives and brings that together in a really you know beautiful foundational way in this in this book and it's been helpful to me i think in particular you know we're talking big abstract ideas right but but the particularly on the ground is that it's just this sense of the importance of a, of a shared common practice of listening and sensitivity to narrative as being foundational to the kind of understanding that allows us to bridge this gap um, and and so he you know in in a very philosophical and kind of winding way goes about those and and I find a lot of you know help kind of personally and going to the primary text itself. Um, but I think also some of those ideas are just helpful on the, on the outside. So that may be another one that we could uh, dip into, you know, little bits and pieces of, and it's been used in, you know, political discourse by different, you know, it's, it's, it's been talked about a lot. Um, and so it comes with its own history um, just as anything, you know, does, but I think it's helpful and it's helpful to me in this moment, you know, as I'm scratching my head and saying like, why, why are we having so much trouble talking to one another? Um, well, I think there, there are some ways that we can go come to a deeper understanding of that intellectually, um, that might help us in our, even just in our day-to-day -day interactions on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things I really want to echo and one of the things that I love about After Virtue in particular, and really all of McIntyre's work that I've read, is this real respect for history. And and not only a respect for it, but the sense of in, in the opening chapter of After Virtue that that there are a lot of different ways in which we can perceive and attempt to understand what's going on around us. But really, a deep understanding of history is the only one that allows us to have the proper perspective to really understand what's going on and understand why there are these different factions, why things just seem to be at this impasse. It really is a, a narrative history that allows us to get to that. And so as we were talking about before, I mean, we, we, have, we have a history of epidemics. We have a history of health in our society where we were talking 
thinking about the 1918 flu pandemic. And so, you know, on the one hand, that gives us grounds for hope. On the other hand, it gives us the sense of sort of being connected with our you know, with our ancestors and people who have faced similar things before. And it's really only through that lens that that we can that, that I think we can rightly understand what's happening today. And again, on a personal, I mean, I think that this this has bearing on on our own experience in this epidemic too. I mean, it, this this is an important time to to take a look at like who we are and to understand who we are in the context of where we've been and how this this epidemic is is and will be a really important part of our life narratives and and recognizing it as such and 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 recognizing that in some sense that's the most real thing that it is right now is 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 this 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 important plot turning point in our own individual illness narratives our own narratives of like what's happening in our lives and I think that that's you know it's it's only it's only with that level of understanding it's only the way that an understanding of our individual and collective history allows us to pull ourselves it, it allows us to both pull ourselves outside of the story and also immerse ourselves more deeply in it and I think that that's sort of what we're all being called to do that's awesome it, I, the image I had in my hand is like family <laughs> drama it's like it it, it kind of reminds me of that where here, you, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I'm the only one, but there's sometimes there's family problems, guys, and uh, you, you keep butting your heads with these family problems, immediate family, extended family, wherever it may be, you have some problems. You keep writing the same stupid issues over and over and over, and the, the fighting gets worse and it gets worse, and then realizing that it's really not about the particular fight. There's much more under the hood that probably started when you were four years old. Or three, that that you're, and, and it's been coping mechanisms, and I think it's a perfect example of like a small on a, on a nucleus level of a, of a family, where this huge macro level family in this enormous amount of discord, and unfortunately we're just constantly doing sound bites and fighting and bickering, and not actually getting to the core of the narrative, the story that's actually brought us to this point, and giving us the opportunity to maybe make something profound of this. Two books I recommend, Predictably, Predictably Irrational and The Organized Mind. Man, I loved, have you guys read The Organized Mind? You have to read it, guys. No, it's like, but you guys yeah. have some great books. Well, so we're not going to have time to have the show anymore. I'll just be reading. Uh, so my, my little bit of free time. There are worse yeah, there, things. Yeah, there, there are worse things. things. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it is a profound book and it, it, it really, yeah, The Organized Mind, I love. And I'm not getting too much into that. It's highly recommended. It just shows how the mind organizes information. You know, he, he uses the 9-11 example of how after 9-11, you know, we had this terrible uh, terrorism attack and then people stopped flying. I mean, it's worse now in some, in a large sense. I mean, uh, airlines are really suffering tremendously, but there was an enormous amount of suffering in 9-11 and how everybody reverted, reverted to cards afterwards, which, which really was just an emotional decision and not rational because uh, technically speaking, you have a much higher chance of dying on the road than going back on a plane after terrorism, especially after what just happened. So it kind of shows how the mind actually works, but particularly irrational. I want to I want to end with this quote. Uh, it, I think for me, it gives a little bit of uh, helps me to have empathy and sympathy for myself and help me for the other as well. So this is kind of the moral of the story I, I got from Predictably Irrational by by Dan Airely, uh, and then Organized Mind by Daniel Levitin. So moral of the story here: I thought we simply cannot predict how we behave in the future when we are in the heat of the moment, which I think we're kind of in a heated moment right now. Rationality works only outside. Now, I may disagree with that a little bit, but I, I, I get where he's going. Rationality works only outside the sphere of temptation. The only way to uphold our beliefs about ourselves is not to put ourselves in opportunities of temptation, right? So what, what, I, what I got out of this right in this moment is that 
when things are difficult and we're getting more polarized and we're being forced to put into one camp or another, we're, we're, we're feeling, we're getting, we're getting pressured. And when we get pressured, our, our initial, our instinct is to be irrational and grab whatever we can around us to defend our stake and ground, which we cannot do. We have to fight it. We have to, as Mark was mentioning, we have to, I think the one way we overcome this, this temptation is through virtue. Uh, being able to uh, realize when it happens and overcome that through hard work to be able to stay rational in those difficult moments. So I'm going to end in that. I think that's just a, a, a I love that, that summary that I feel like I feel like it all the time. And the most important thing is to ground ourselves in the story, like real story. Um, you know, I just, I, I've looked parts of a pandemic and the hype that's going around and all the, all the buzz and all the, 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 the articles the most important thing is grounded in real, genuine story. What's what's the actual stuff that's really going on? I think we'll wrap this up. Uh, another long episode. Thank you guys for hanging in there. Thank you for listening to us. Uh, again, if you have some resources available, we'd love the support financially. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. Or check out the show notes for a Venmo or PayPal one-time small donation. Uh, if you want to get in contact with Stephen on Twitter, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R. Me about the podcast in general, M-A-T-T-B. B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R. And I hope you guys have an awesome, wonderful day. And we will see you on Thursday. Take care. Bye-bye.